Have you ever thought that you really knew a song? That you knew it so well that you had all the lyrics down cold only to have someone else tell you you missed it? That you didn't really understand the song or that the words you were singing were not the actual words of the song? I have done this, and it was pretty ridiculous. About 15 years ago, while I was serving as one of the worship leaders at this church, one of my friends mailed me a CD that had a demo of a new worship song on it, and it was this really rough recording. Many of you may know this song now. It's entitled, Your Love is Amazing. It's been recorded by a number of artists at this point, but back then, it was brand new. No one had recorded it, and I had never heard it. There was no recording for me to find online. There was no website that had the lyrics. All I had was a rough cut demo of a brand new song. So if I wanted our team to learn that song for worship, I was going to have to create a chart for it from scratch. So I did. I listened to the demo CD over and over and over, figured out the arrangement, and created a chart for our team, which included me transcribing the lyrics as best as I could understand them. Now, I need you to understand that this demo had not been mixed, it had not been mastered, the levels were not good, and at different points, the lyrics were really hard to decipher. I need you to understand that before I tell you what I did. The first verse, which you probably recognize of this song now, is supposed to say, your love is amazing, steady and unchanging. Your love is a mountain, firm beneath my feet. Unfortunately, that's not what I heard. What I heard was, your love is amazing, steady and unchanging. Your love is a mountain of fur beneath my feet. And that's exactly what I put on the chart that I passed out to the band for us to practice. As you can imagine, when my crazy lyric was surrounded by chords and other musical information, it didn't really jump off the page, so no one noticed it at first. But then when we started to sing it together, and the vocalist got to the mountain of fur, the wheels came off. I couldn't understand what the problem was. The words and their meaning made sense to me. Who doesn't want a mountain of nice, soft fur beneath their feet, in between their toes? It sounded pleasant. I thought, of course, God's love is warm and fuzzy. And you'll all be relieved to know that one of the vocalists corrected the lyric that night, so we never actually sang the fur lyric in a worship service, but it does still come up in practice from time to time. And I challenge you the next time you hear that song not to think about fur beneath your feet. You won't be able to do it, and you're welcome. We all do this. We could probably all share lyrics or words we thought were saying one thing that were actually saying something else. There are websites devoted to this phenomenon, sites that list the strange lyrics and meanings we think we hear in our favorite songs. Here are just a few of my favorite examples. In Jimi Hendrix's Purple Haze, some of us don't hear Jimi's poetic line, excuse me while I kiss the sky, but a much more practical, excuse me, while I kiss this guy. The monkey's hit, I'm a believer, is transformed into, then I saw her face, now I'm going to leave her. The verse in Queen's, 
We will rock you is not heard as kicking your can all over the place, but kicking your cat all over the place. Completely, yes, thank you. Once again, steering away from the poetic and toward the practical, Credence Clearwater Revival's hit lyric changes from there's a bad moon on the rise to there's a bathroom on the right. And given the scripture we're discussing today, Bob Dylan's famous song, Blowing in the Wind, is particularly relevant. Some of us don't hear Bob saying the answer, my friend, and instead hear the ants are my friend. Now, whether that makes you think of your aunt, the sister of your parent, or little bugs that bite, they're all blowing in the wind. Now, clearly coming from the 60s and 70s, These examples are a little dated, but I assure you this phenomenon still happens, even in the new songs we will hear this year. As long as we are listening, we will inevitably sometimes mishear and misunderstand. We will continue to arrive at mountains of fur beneath our feet. When I think about the text from 2 Timothy that we heard just a moment ago, it occurs to me that perhaps this phenomenon is not limited to music, that we might also be capable of mishearing and misunderstanding the words of the Bible and arriving at some really strange ideas. The words of 2 Timothy 3.16 are pretty well known. If they were a song, they'd be among the greatest hits of the Bible. We probably all recognize at least a few of the lyrics, especially the first part. All scripture is God-breathed or perhaps a slightly different translation, all scripture is inspired by God. As soon as we hear the words, we know the song. We know exactly what's being said. We know what this means, don't we? If you're like me, you have heard what these words mean is that God wrote the Bible. Maybe we've even heard someone try to explain what that looked like exactly that God dictated divine thoughts to willing scribes or perhaps whispered in their ears with a still small voice or even possessed the writers as of the biblical books in some way to have them write down exactly what God wanted written down. This line of thinking, here's the opening words of 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God-breathed and determines not only that God literally wrote the Bible, but also concludes that since God is perfect, the Bible must also be perfect, that it's inerrant or without error, and it's not up for debate or discussion. God wrote it. That's it. Now, I'm going to ask you to take a deep breath. Everybody breathe in. And now breathe out slowly. It's good for us to connect with our breath. It's good for our health. We take our breath for granted. Let's do it one more time. Everybody breathe in and breathe out slowly. We should all feel calmer, more rooted, more connected to our bodies and even to each other as we do that. And while we are all nice and calm and centered, Let me take this opportunity to invite you to recognize that the idea that God literally wrote the Bible is a mountain of fur beneath our feet. It's just not what's going on in 2 Timothy at all. 
we have misheard or misunderstood. It's too small of an idea. It's not what the lyricist is hoping we will understand. And before we dig any deeper, it's necessary to acknowledge that the reason I say the lyricist is because the identity of the actual writer of 2 Timothy is an area of scholarly debate. We're not sure who wrote it. Traditionally, the thought was that the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to his disciple Timothy in the mid-60s of the first century, 30 years or so after the death of Christ, and just a few years before Paul's own death. And if that's the case, then 2 Timothy is Paul's last letter at least the last letter that we have. Modern scholarship, however, contends that 2 Timothy is just too different from the rest of Paul's writing to have been written by Paul, and it was more likely written by a student of Paul's teaching, somewhere between 90 and 120 CE. Now, why does that matter to us? In terms of deciding who really wrote this letter, it doesn't need to matter too much. It's not an argument that's gonna help us get through our day or make better sense of our world. We can think that Paul wrote this letter or not. Either is fine in my humble opinion. But in terms of when this was written, both possibilities can help us understand something significant about the words of 2 Timothy 3.16. For the sake of clarity, let's take a look at a rough timeline of the New Testament writing. Now I say rough timeline because it's important to acknowledge that when we look back into ancient history, we very rarely deal with precise dates and time. More often than not, what we can deduce are windows of time, educated estimates. It's not actually that Jesus was born in the year zero and then lived until year 33 CE. First of all, there's no such thing as year zero. What we can say is that the birth, life, and death of Jesus took place roughly in the window of 5 BCE to 33 CE, and that some 15 or so years after that, Paul begins to write the letters that we know Paul wrote, which may include 2 Timothy, somewhere between the years of 48 and 67, which is when we assume Paul died, roughly. The Gospel of Mark shows up on the scene right at the end of Paul's life, if not right after his death. And that's the first gospel to be written some 30 to 35 years after the death of Christ. Then followed by the gospel of Matthew in the mid-70s, the gospel of Luke in the mid-80s, the gospel of John around 90 CE. And what happens over here on this side, and again, this is rough, is that what we now call the Hebrew Bible, or some of us may refer to it as the Old Testament, um, begins to take shape as we know it today late in the first century. And what we now call the Christian Bible, the New Testament, begins to take shape in the fourth century. Now why does that, why does any of that matter to how we understand 2 Timothy 3.16? Because whether these words were written by Paul in the 60s or by a student of his doctrine 30 or so years later, the Bible as we know it did not exist. The New Testament didn't exist, and it wouldn't for over 200 more years. If Paul wrote these words in the 60s to Timothy, the Gospels weren't even around yet. 
which should cause us to ask, when the writer of 2 Timothy says, all scripture is God-breathed, what scripture is the writer talking about? They're not talking about the Gospels. They're not talking about a New Testament or Christian Bible that does not yet exist. They're talking about the Hebrew Scriptures, the sacred books that were accepted and available to them at the time these words were written. They're talking about the writings, the prophets, and most specifically, the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Now, this historical reality in and of itself should cause us to loosen our death grip on the Bible and consider the possibility that the writer of 2 Timothy might be driving toward a bigger idea than God literally wrote the Bible. The good news is if we're willing to ask and look, the actual words written in verse 16 and 17 hold clues to help us discover the bigger ideas. My favorite clue is the Greek word behind the phrase, God breathed. The word the writer actually uses there is the word theonustos. Everybody say theonustos. Theonustos, you probably recognize some of the words that make up that word, the first part being theo. That just means God, like theology, which is thoughts or speech about God. And then noustos we may recognize from words in our language like pneumonia or pneumatic tools, things that have to do with air, breath, wind. There's a Latin version of this, which is the word spire. Everybody say spire. Okay, spire serves the same purpose. It's just the Latin version of theonustos. And both of these words simultaneously mean wind, breath, and spirit. They mean all of the above at the same time. So when, you, when the writer of 2 Timothy says, all scripture is theonustos, we get a very good translation in our English when we say all scripture is God-breathed. That works. The Latin version would be all scripture is inspired by God. The same idea using a Latin root. All of it meaning filled with, inhabited by, brought to life with the breath, the wind, the spirit of God. And both of those words are connected to another word that means breath, wind, and spirit. The Hebrew word ruach. Everybody say ruach a word that we find in the poetic opening lines of Genesis, the very scripture to which the writer of 2 Timothy wants us to connect. Now listen to this portion of the story of God as it is written in the library that breathes life from the first chapter of Genesis. In the beginning when God created the heavens and earth, the earth was formless and void, and darkness covered the face of the deep while a ruach from God, a wind, a breath, a spirit, hovered over the face of the waters. The story of God told for the people of God. Thanks be to God. The opening words of the poem of Genesis 1 
the ruach, the breath of God, the wind of God, the spirit of God is there to take that which is formless and void, that which is lifeless, and bring it to life. In the second creation poem of Genesis 2, God takes Adam, the Hebrew word for dirt, and breathes into it, making humanity. The breath, the wind, the spirit of God, making the formless and void dirt come to life. These poems from Genesis 1 and 2 open the Torah. They begin the scripture, the story of God. So when 2 Timothy says that all scripture is God-breathed, these are the very scriptures to which it is referring. All scripture is theonustos. All scripture is inspired. All scripture is filled with the ruach of God. And according to Genesis 1, so is creation. According to Genesis 2, so is humanity. According to these scriptures, there is the tangible material, like a lifeless sphere of rock floating in cold space, or the formless and void dirt, or even the words on a piece of paper in a book. And then there is that which breathes life, bringing forth creation and humankind and holy scripture. And according to the writer of 2 Timothy, that breath belongs to God. What makes the earth more than a lifeless rock, what makes us more than dirt, what makes the poetic words of Genesis and 2 Timothy more than just words on a page is the breath, the wind, the spirit of God. The same thing that animates the universe animates you. It gives you life. And it breathes the scripture of God's story. Author and theologian Pete Rollins tells a story about giving a sermon when he was a young man where he tore the Bible from which he was preaching into pieces and threw the pieces across the room. As you can imagine, his congregation was shocked. He had their attention. Whereupon he made the point that it was not the paper, nor the ink, nor the leather cover that made the scripture sacred. It's just a book. What makes it sacred, he said, is when the story of that book is incarnated in us. Now, Pete's kind of a wild Irish poet, so I get that even thinking about tearing a Bible or throwing it across a room may make us uneasy. But we can still be honest about the point. What if I were to hold up a CD that contained the Bible and then break that CD into pieces? What if I pulled out my phone, showed you my Bible app, and then deleted it? That probably seems a lot less scandalous and offensive, but the outcome is the same. The CD or app are not any more sacred in and of themselves than the book. What makes the scripture within the book or the CD or the app sacred is when it lives in us, when we breathe it in and out. Scripture is not sacred because God dictated it or possessed the writers of the biblical books. 
Scripture is sacred because it is alive with the breath of God in us. Each time we read or hear these stories, each time we shema, listening so intently that we can't help but respond, each time we wrestle with it, each time we argue and debate and dialogue about it, each time we let it get inside of us and awaken us, each time we act it out, it breathes. And I want to invite you to take another deep breath. Everybody breathe in and breathe out. As we consider these well-known lyrics of 2 Timothy and what they might mean, things that we originally misheard or misunderstood. If Scripture breathes, if it is alive, then it is necessarily more dynamic than something that is not. A living Scripture will change as we go. Stories and words that meant one thing to us in one season of life will deepen and even mean something completely different in another season. If Scripture breathes, if it is really alive, then it is necessarily more dangerous to our status quo than something that is not. Dead things, lifeless things, they don't threaten our norms. They don't challenge us. They don't cause us to grow or transform. Living things affect us, and not always in the ways that we want. And if Scripture breathes, if it's alive, then it demands a response. We must either be responsive to it or deny its breath, treating it as though it's not alive at all. And friends, I'm not talking about atheists or other religions when I refer to treating the Scripture as though it's not alive. As long as there has been Scripture, there have been deeply religious people capable of clinging to the Scripture while living unchanged, loveless, breathless lives. We can be devout, Sunday school attending, tithing Christians that worship a dead book. But if it breathes like me, if it's alive like you, then we must respond. We can't keep something alive in front of us, inside of us, and not respond to it. Maintaining and nourishing life is a responsibility. It demands response. If 2 Timothy 3.16 is just a proof text that tells me the Bible was literally dictated or written by God, that my breath doesn't connect me to it in any way, that my dirty humanity doesn't infect its pages, that it's a perfect book in the hands of an imperfect person like me, then it's only good for one thing, measuring. If it's simply the divine rule book, then all I can do with it is decide whether or not I'm following the rules well enough to be okay with God or whether or not you are following the rules well enough to be okay with God. But if it's alive, like creation, if it breathes like my neighbors do, like my enemies do, then not only will it change, 
it will change me. Continually requiring me to respond, continually inviting me to accept the responsibility I have to this God-breathed story as a bearer of God's breath in a God-breathed universe. The God of the Bible doesn't diminish our freedom in order to work around us. The God of the Bible doesn't dictate the divine voice while dismissing ours as irrelevant. The God of the Bible breathes into us, dwells within and among us, and works in and through us. Friends, we live now, as we always have, in an imperfect world. Tragedy, injustice, greed, corruption, and sickness have always been, and they still are today. We know that. How will we respond? What good news will we breathe into this world? A divinely dictated, inerrant rule book that allows us to sit passively on the sidelines, safe and sound in the knowledge that we measure up? Or a breathing story of a loving God that is as close to us as our very breath, a mountain of love firm beneath our feet, accepting, transforming, and calling us forward into a relationship that's alive. You probably know this before you hear it, but the answer, my friends, is blowing in the wind.